Design in general is a job that is done by polishing and taking out what is superfluous somehow to arrive to the essence. If I'm designing for Ginori and I'm trying to be minimalistic, we never work for the Ginori DNA. <laughs> so if I want to be able to say something, I need to find another angle, another, you know, deep analysis into what is the DNA of the brand and try to interpret that. And then we come out the result. I, in the end, I will apply my style, the shape, because that is my signature. I try to apply those in other typology. I will be not anymore a designer. I will be a stylist. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. A quick note, stay up to date on all the latest episodes of The Grand Tourist by signing up with your email at thegrandtourist.net. Today, the world of product design can be dictated by the most senior and respected names, sometimes drowning out the voices of a new generation. But my guest today represents a new upcoming class of maestros with a fresh perspective. Luca Niketo, barely in his mid-40s, Luca has designed hundreds of products for dozens of names in the industry, like Hermes, Casina, and Genori, creating everything from sunglasses, lighting, and furniture to ceramics and perfume bottles. He even designed a piano for Steinway & Sons. But it all starts with glass. Luca was raised on the island of Murano in Venice, a little place renowned for its heritage of glassblowing, and it's there where a young Luca would absorb a passion for design. When looking at Luca's work, it's certainly glamorous, but lacks a kind of pretension, and Luca himself is just as pleasant, warm and thoughtful, humble and open about his process. In short, he's a designer's designer. His first ever monograph, Luca Niketo, Projects, Collaborations and Conversations in Design, published by Fiden, chronicles 137 products by the daring talent, and most surprisingly, features the voices of other designers to discuss not only his work, but many of the ins and outs surrounding design culture today. While Luca is as Italian as it comes, he has a unique outsider element to his career. First of all, he lives mostly in Sweden, not Italy, and he started his career not wandering the halls of a museum, but by playing basketball. I caught up with Luca from his home in Stockholm, to discuss how he transitioned from sportsman to creative, how he used to sell sketches to make ends meet, and what makes him a true designer. And and tell me tell me a little bit about your your how you were raised. You grew up in Murano in, in Venice, is that correct? Yes. It's a tiny it's a small island. I mean it's it's you know it's very famous, but it's a small place. I think I've been on every every street in Murano. What was that like growing up there? Well, I always say that for me, growing up in Murano was a little bit like to be Tom Sawyer, you know? Like, <laughs> honestly, now that I'm also living abroad and through my job, I was traveling a lot, different places. My childhood in, in, in Murano is even more special now that I realize how special is Venice and Murano themselves. The little island, uh, famous for the glass industry, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, I always say that for me, see a drawings that was becoming an object was something totally natural because uh, was almost, you know, going to buy some bread in a way. And um, the, the funny thing is that 
in the end, Murano is an island with 4,000 people that live there, and everyone know each other, everyone. So it's like to be in a big brother, almost, or a Truman show, <laughs> because you can't do nothing without that somebody is reporting everything to your parents, or etc. So in a way, it's a very uh, safe place <laughs> to grow up. But in the same time, is also very, especially when you are a teenager, you really want to escape from this situation. And and what did your parents do in Murano? Did they work in glass, or did they work in, in my my mom was involved in the glass industry. She was um, she dec- decorating glass and uh, painting almost. My father, no, my father was uh, doing completely a different job. He was working in a bank in Venice. But then I have my grandparents, both was working in the glass uh, industry. One was a proper glass blower, a master. He was specialized in chandelier. Uh, and the other one was uh, starting the beginning as a um, as a building company. So he was building the house in Murano in the 60s and the 70s. And then later he started to build the oven to melting the, the glass. But, you know, in the end, it's quite funny because I can say that when I was there and I raised in that island, 99.99% of people that were surrounding me was involved in the glass industry in a way or in another. And so it kind of, it's a part of your childhood, whether you like it or not. Yes. I always say it's part of my blood because, (laughs) (laughs) because, um, yeah, I was like that. And, and I, I've heard that you, and especially in your new book, uh, it gets mentioned a few times, uh, your childhood in basketball, which I'm kind of, uh, fascinated by. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it's quite interesting story, honestly, because you know the um, uh, basket basketball in Venice is probably the most popular sport for a simple reason. Entire Italy, of course, is much more focused on soccer, football. Of course, uh, but in Venice. Uh, the island is pretty small, so there was not big place to build up field for to play football. But Venice, in terms of um, let's say geographical uh, plan, etc., the, um, there is this tiny square, and the square normally was close to a church, and there was a lot of church. There is a lot of church. Of course. So for the kids. In Venice and Murano, in the lagoon, let's say in the Venetian sure. lagoon, going to play in the square in the front of the church was quite normal. So what happened is that the priest, uh, following the popular uh, news that there was a new sport like basketball, they decide to put the basket. So in the end, what was interesting is that in Venice, when I was a kid, there was at least at least 35 different teams that was playing basket <laughs> in <laughs> Venice. Uh, and then, of course, there was the team, uh, the, the major team that was playing the, um, we call Serie A, that means the top series in Italy. Right, right. That is uh, called Reier Venezia, that normally they were really scouting the most talented 
kids and then later bring them in their, let's say, campus uh, and young teams. And so I start playing in Murano when I was five, six years old. And I play in Murano until I was... 12. And then the, the, the team of Venice, uh, Rayer, um, some scouting say, oh, there is this guy that is good. Uh, so they, they, in a way, uh, bring me <laughs> to the... <laughs> and I play with the, with the Venice team until I was uh, 19, 18. And I came also in the... Um, the first time that I came in the United States was uh, through the through basketball because we wow. were invited in um, in Milwaukee. Uh, <laughs> how did you think? How did a young Luca Nicato think of what did he think about Milwaukee? Well, honestly, you know, for us uh, uh, young Italians that was watching TV, and it was for me happy days. Was a kind of famous <laughs> TV series with Fonsies and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So for <laughs> me, I associate immediately, you know, Milwaukee with that TV series. And it was sure. funny because all of us, when we landed in Milwaukee, we were asking around where was Arnold's, you know, the, the pub where in the happy days the people <laughs> was hanging out, without really thinking that was completely fake. But <laughs> but was a uh, it was a beautiful experience. I was 16. Yeah, 16. And first time, uh, yeah, traveling with all my teammates in, uh, in the States, playing against, uh, uh, different teams also from America, but also there was a other European team. Um, well, it was, a, was a beautiful experience, honestly. Before we return to Luca, a word from our partner, Polyform. With its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design-driven products that outfit nearly every inch of the modern home. From its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and mastery of Italian style, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd expect from a company headquartered in Brianza, near Lake Como. As the Grand Tourist is always shopping for his next remodel, or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. The Mad Chaise Lange is one such icon, with a clever and simple design that turns traditional ideas upside down. It's an idea that only its creator, Marcel Wanders, could dream up. Known for his playful objects, works of art, hotels, and furniture, the Dutch designer always knows how to add a bit of whimsy to any concept. The Mad Chaise Lange is a perfect example. It has a low, mid-century-looking arm on one side, and a long, single-cushioned seat with a curved base. But what makes this stand out is the design's back. The side with the arm has a tall back that looks almost humorous, a typical Marcel Wanders move. But that tall back also changes the chaise into an impromptu high-back armchair when the mood suits. For more information about the Mad Chaise Lange and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. And how did you how did how did you go from being like a 19-year-old professional uh, uh, basketball player in a team in a traveling team and how did you go from there to becoming a designer? What was that that's a big transition and 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 an admirable one. I mean in a way like that you accomplished that. I was lucky enough 
that uh, since I was a kid, I loved to, to draw. And my teacher, etc., was always telling to my parents that I have this talent in drawings. And I really enjoy drawings, by the way. So my parents was very open-minded and they didn't really push me to study what they think was better for their kids but they really tried to accommodate my uh, my patient so I went to study in the meantime that I was playing basket I went to study in Venice at Institute of Art that was one of the oldest let's call professional school for applied art and there was common let's say courses like mathematics italian english etc that we all um, have together with my classmates and then there was more specific let's say courses uh, that you specialize yourself in different kind of material and craftsmanship so there was glass there was uh, jewelry there was uh, ceramic and of course i pick uh, glass as a section. So in the summertime with my classmates, uh, we had this ritual going around Murano and knocking the door of the different factory to selling our drawings. I, I can call that project was drawings. And the factory was really, you know, they were really accepting this, and it's not that they were paying us a fortune, but for us, it was mostly like our summer job in an easy way. And I was doing that to have some money in my pocket to have fun with my friends during the summertime. When I, uh, let's say I finished my, uh, my high school, yeah, my studies, and it was the moment to pick what kind of university uh, to do. And at the same time, I have in the front of me the opportunity to say I will concentrate myself only in basket because basket, I was training myself like, like crazy, almost every day, sometimes twice per day. And maybe I was, I don't know, clever enough to understand that I was good in playing basket, but maybe not so good to be a real, you know, uh, professional for a long time. So then I, I was looking around what kind of university to pick. And I have a lot of friends that was studying architecture in Venice that is kind of renowned university. I don't really want to study architecture because at that time, uh, let's say a lot of friends of my older than me was studying there for more than 10 years. <laughs> and I know my you know personality. I say, if there is not a proper structure that oblige me to finish in a sort of time, I will never finish. And then magically, I discovered that Venice was opening up a new course in, uh, in uh, industrial design. And when I went read through the description of this uh, faculty, I say, okay, I can give a shot. Looks something interesting. And, and I did that. So I decided to be more focused in uh, my studies. And at the sport, I continued to play, but not, uh, let's say, I started to play in a minor series to have more time uh, to also to combine the studies. And then 
this ritual that I was mentioned to you before about knocking the door of the factory, I continue, I was something part of me. And lucky enough, again, luck is a big part to be in the right place in the right time. I knocked the door of Salviati the last year of my, uh, before my mm -hmm. degree. Famous, uh, famous glass company. Yes. Was one of the most famous Salviati at that time in, in Murano. Uh, and they were collaborating with uh, Anish Kapoor, Thomas Sederwick, Tom Dixon, Ross Logbrove. A lot of British designer there was at that time, and Ingo Maurer. So, and Simon Moore, the art director of the company, uh, was a former professor of Royal College of Art. When he saw my drawing, he was quite um, touched about my creativity. But he told me, I still remember perfectly. He told me, "I I want to buy everything." And I was like right. that. No, I was like super happy. And I said, finally, I found someone that buy everything. So at the end, I don't need to do another tour around the island. But then he say, but it's pretty clear that you don't understand nothing what the company needs. Right. <laughs> and I was like, okay, and why you want to buy everything? I said, because I want to show you that I think you are, you are talented. And I would love to suggest, if you have time, to pass by in the factory once per week, and I will show you around, and you will understand what the company need. And, you know, for me, to see someone that trusts me and want to, you know, also buy some stuff from me uh, without really producing that and give me also this chance, I say, okay, I'll give a shot. I have to ask, when someone would buy you as, as, as a young man, you're walking around and, and offering these sketches, like, and they would buy a, a sketch from you to to make some glass. Like, how much did they pay you for a for for a sketch back then? How much did, were for kids going around? What what are we talking was, about? Uh, was around fifteen euro, like fifteen dollars. Oh my god! Per <laughs> per sketch. Oh wow. Okay. Uh, so it was nothing, honestly. Yeah. Wow. Um, okay. But then, um, then. Uh, uh, on, honestly, I don't know. At that time, I have no idea the value of what I was creating. I, I have no clue. And spending this time with Simon, uh, he showed me around. I had the privilege to meet these people like Anish Kapoor, Ross, uh, and many others and see the different approach. Someone was arriving with a sketch. Uh, another was arriving with the first rendering. Another one was just talking. And so it was very interesting, and especially for a young student in industrial design in Italy, seeing these, uh, you know, uh, acclaimed uh, people in real. Uh, honestly, I always say that that period for me was more important than my studies uh, at university because I learned much more <laughs> in the factory <laughs> than during my studies. And then, uh, and then Simon gave me a brief, finally, uh, after that he <laughs> explained me many times what means a brief. Sure. And uh, so I designed this collection of vases called Mille Bolle, that's still in production. That Mille Bolle means thousand bubble, where I use a very old technique to create bubble uh, inside the glass. 
mm-hmm. and then I blew in this in a shape, uh, so the the bubble somehow start to uh, modify their shape and overlap into each other to create a very special effect. And uh, and this project become one of the best seller of the company. Uh, and that was the moment that I realized that I need to sign a contract. And the contract, uh, uh, I hear the word royalties for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have no clue about that. And then I was, I remember I was asking to, to Simon, say, but how I can get my royalties? I say, yeah, you should do an invoice. <laughs> yes. And then, you know, was all a discovering. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was more than just a design education, I guess you could say. It, absolutely. So in the end, I opened up my freelance position um, just one year before to finish, uh, to have my degree. Uh, and then when I have my freelance position, I say, well, uh, I need to pay taxes on that. So it's better that I start to do other things. Uh, and that was the moment that later also to have my final credit to 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 do my degree in design, I need to have, um, I need to do an internship. It was obligatory to have an internship. I asked it to Foscarini that in that period was Alf based in Murano and Alf based in the hinterland of Venice. If I can do an internship in their technical office, a famous uh, lighting company. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And that was also a fantastic moment because Foscarini was changing, let's say, their DNA, not doing only lighting Murano glass, but also experiment other materials. So I had this opportunity in one hand to have Salviati, that was very craft artisan approach. In the other hand, it was Foscarini was much more into the mass market and more, you know, industrialization of a product. And before to finish the internship, I asked to the owners of Foscarini if I had some idea, if I can submit to them, etc., to to be in touch and to see if I was able to create something for them. And they were also very open. They probably kill thousands of my proposal <laughs> until, uh, but every time that they kill a project, they were explain me why. So that I was see. fantastic. Which is va- very valuable that yeah. they were able to give you feedback too. Exactly. And then uh, in, um, in two, was 99, I submit to them. Uh, a lamp that was completely done in aluminium, in laser cut aluminium, and they really loved that. And so, in the end, they uh, they decided to do the prototype, etc. So, in the beginning of 2000, they launched this uh, lamp with uh, Foscarini, and and also they loved my approach in researching different material and finding solutions. So, they proposed to me to do a sort of consultancy for them for development and research. And so I was helping them with, I don't know, Karim Rashid was arriving with idea uh, or uh, Urkiola, etc. So it was also interesting to see different designer with their creativity what, in the way they was thinking a proposal for Foscherini. And my job was finding the supplier and the process to 
to realize that. So I had these two situations in the beginning that really helped me to shape, let's say, my, my approach in, in design. Before we return to Luca, a word from our sponsor, Ford Street Studio. Ford Street Studio's sumptuous carpets are expertly hand-knotted and executed in nuanced color combinations that are the signature of the studio's painterly designs, which originate from watercolor art. The brand services a global clientele from its flagship showroom in Manhattan, where their team of specialists guide interior designers, architects, and collectors through the studio's offerings. The legendary outfit has an extensive catalog where each design can be customized endlessly, but they also carry stock carpets in standard sizes. As the offerings of Ford Street Studio are so expertly hand-knotted, photos rarely do these works of art justice. That's why an in-person consultation is so key. Only then can the subtleties of rug design and its colors truly come to life. To book your own consultation, visit FordStreetStudio.com. In recent years, the Great Recession, the internet, and now the pandemic have all challenged what defines Italian style. That's why Luca's life and career is so fascinating to me. His openness to collaboration and new ideas gives his portfolio a unique mix of Scandinavian honesty, Italian flair, and perhaps a little bit of American bravado. I wanted to find out how he sees himself in the mix, the state of Italian design in his eyes, and ask, just what is a designer anyway? So I wanted to ask, uh, as someone who was raised in Italy and now is mostly living in Stockholm, how much of your identity as a designer is still, you know, quote unquote, Italian in your eyes? And how did you wind up in Sweden in the first place? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So to be honest, then the, the truth is uh, for me to become a designer was completely, um, uh, was, was not really a decision. It was mostly very a natural process. And for that reason, I'm saying that I was very lucky in uh, to probably born in the right place uh, in in the right time uh, and to jump in the proper train to at least to have the taking the risk no to 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 see opportunity to jump into that opportunity and uh, with a gut feeling that somehow this opportunity will you know show me what could be the future f- for for my job and uh, and then the reason why I'm I'm in Stockholm right now is uh, a lot of people, you know, was thinking that was mostly a, a business reason. The truth is uh, that I met in 2003 uh, a beautiful woman that uh, become my wife, and I met her in Venice. She is. Uh, um, she's working for now. She's working for the Royal Opera in Stockholm as a costume. She's a tailor. She's doing costume, and uh, and she was in Venice to do an internship at La Fenice Theater. And uh, so we met. Her plan was to stay one year. Then she stayed eight years <laughs> until the opera in Stockholm. Uh, there was an open position. They contact her. It was her dream job. So, and I told to her, uh, keep this opportunity and, and go forward. I will do back and forth. Uh, and that is what I did until 2015 when we decided to become 
to build a family and now I have two little kids. So let's say that in the past I was part-time. Now also considering the situation, the pandemic is completely full-time here. And would you say that your designs now, you know, now that you spent this time in, in Stockholm, that do you think of your work still as identifiably Italian? And, I, and the reason why I ask that is that in the book, um, Ero Covisto from you know, uh, class on Covisto Rune says that you, your style is more wild and that you're, you're kind of renewing what it means to, uh, to renewing the idea of Italian design. Do you think that is that, do you, do you agree with that statement? Do you think your design is really identifiably Italian now? Or are you kind of going in a different direction now? You think well, the interesting thing for me is in 2020, one or 22, wherever, uh, is kind of uh, to continue to talk about Swedish design, Scandinavian design, Italian design, Japanese design, etc. It's now putting people in, in, in a box. And it's totally understandable because, of course, our route is coming from a specific <laughs> uh, situation. We are, in a way, similar, but legacy, heritage, etc., etc., are different. I think what Errol was trying to uh, say with that statement was mostly that for many years, Italian design was identified with a sort of figure that first was the master, later was with figure like... Uh, Piero Lissoni, Patricia Urchiola, Rodolfo Dordoni. So designer that was also architect, but in the same time also much more art director. No, and uh, they are they were doing kind of uh, mm. very totalitarian art direction in in a way. Yes. So both interiors and products yeah. and everything. Yeah. And in that sense, I think uh, what and. Knowing Hero, I'm sure that is thinking about what kind of legacy I can create for the new generation of Italian designers to say design is not uh, is in Italy, of course, but design can be done everywhere in the world. So in that sense, to 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 be an Italian designer that open up the door <laughs> and showing that you can work abroad, that is a bit the opposite of what happened many year, for many years where the foreign designer was coming in Italy. <laughs> and that, I think, is something that I uh, I really like and I agree with Ero that maybe this uh, behavior can uh, open up uh, a different view about uh, design in general, especially for young Italian designer. And uh, but it's also true that uh, I think living here in Scandinavia and trying to absorb and breathe a different culture and different vision about design, uh, and some you know, in every kind of situation, like an immigrant, you are trying to act as people in the country that is uh, where you are living. But then later, your nature <laughs> and your uh, what you are missing is coming out even bigger than before. So if you look, I think my last projects that I did, 
they're much more expressive and much more, let's say, emotional <laughs> than when I was working only in Italy. And I think it's because uh, it's, a, it's a human uh, reaction to be far away from where you born, I think. And do you think that Italian design needs to be renewed? Are we... 100%. Yeah, why so? I think the Italian design, because m many people m thinking that Italian design is connected to the output of and the creation of the designer. But the truth is that Italian design become so famous and so strong all around the world because there was two big components. The designer, for sure, right. but an incredible class of entrepreneur <laughs> right. that was able and have a vision to embrace this new talent and, and going, you know, in the world. Plus, industrial design in Italy, because our industry is much more connected to the craftsmanship. And, uh, and if we are looking in the past even more, the sense of beauty that was for everyone that is coming from the Renaissance movement, more or less, that is part of uh, the way that the Italian, uh, let's say, manufacturing developed a sort of uh, way to do things. Uh, and that is the reason we don't have such a huge corporation. It's impossible to think that in Italy there will be another Herman Miller, for example, or because the scale of our company is much smaller and most of the time was run by a family. So you have right. a, one decision maker that you speak and he don't really care about what the market wants or not. <laughs> They don't right. care about marketing thing. They were much more, you know, they f they trust their instinct. Yeah. And that is the way that Italian design born. In the last 20 years, I think there was uh, a lot of struggling in terms of um, uh, acquisition of the company from Venture Capital, uh, losing the, how to say, the vision no? and the instinct everything become much more market oriented because of course if you have an investor you need to show result so the magic touch of uh, italian design somehow was losing uh, against the financial aspect uh, maybe it's not only italian this problem <laughs> but um, but but a lot of those italian brands from born in the 60s uh, especially you know, uh, the families have sort of moved on. They've been sold to other larger companies. And so things have evolved. Yeah. And a lot of more commercially yeah. minded. And, and and a lot of Americans company are, you know, uh, especially uh, buying <laughs> like uh, Italy become a sort of design supermarket in that sense. But in a, in a way, it's good. In a way, it's good for Italian brands also because they can have much more muscle to 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 you know uh, to perform. But what for me is important uh, for Italian design is to maintain this kind of very strong connection with the territory and with the skills of the people. Because if we are not able to, and we are just only looking the price or the performance, we are going to lose uh, an incredible heritage that is what, in a way, um, 
make us survive <laughs> in, uh, in the field. Uh, and that for me is what needs to change in the, and I think if there would be a class of young designer that are going abroad <laughs> and understand how much is more complex working with American brand, a Chinese brand, a Scandinavian brand, for many reasons. And then doing this experience and having a vision that give you much more tooling no, to, to also educate the Italian company to understand how the world is moving, that can really create this sort of contamination that can move on the design differently. And do you think, you know, this is more of a, as we would say, a 30,000 foot question, right? Um, in a very basic way, um, you know, if you had to explain to somebody off the street, um, how do you describe the work of Luca Nichetto? How do you describe your work? Well, I really like this, um, this multidisciplinary approach that we are having more and more as a studio. And my, let's say my way to think and to doing design is trying to challenge myself. Challenge myself means I really love jumping out of my comfort zone. So, and I've loved the design of Luca Nikita, I think is unexpected sometime. Uh, and that is what I've loved that people think about. So also that for many years, a good designer was defined by a style <laughs> and, and the style was need to be precise. And if you look, for example, the, the work of Ross Lovegrove was a very specific style. And the work of uh, Jaime Ayon, that is a dear friend, have a very specific style. So it's very easy to recognize and to connect with a character, that style. In my case, maybe because I'm also coming from Italian culture, and I really like what Magistrati was saying, that the designer is the father and the company is the mother. So if you change one of the two, the result will be different. I don't want that my design is defined by a style. I want that my design is defined much more by an attitude in what I'm doing. And um, because I think in that way, the longevity of what I'm doing will be longer <laughs> uh, and not defined by just a period. And that is my goal. Every year or every couple of years when we are doing some project, there will be always something that's coming out from us that people say, oh, wow, what is this? And it's a new you know, trajectory that we are trying to open up. And how many projects are you working on right now at any given time? Right now we are working, oh, I think we are around 25 different projects. Wow. And how many people do you have in your studio in both places? So right now in total, we are in eight, uh, four and four, but we are in a sort of uh, revamping. So I'm, I'm looking to hire uh, two new, uh, let's say, I have two job description open because I really need to structureize properly uh, the studio even more because uh, my sensation is also that through the pandemic, 
many things change also in terms of designing things and the support that the designer need to give to the client. So I'm trying to structureize to, 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 to be ready for that. And, you know, that brings up an, uh, a, a, something I noticed in the book is that in most people's uh, monographs, right, it's all about, you know, showing off your voice and your work and your point of view. Whereas in this book, you also have not only is there are, there are conversations between people that aren't necessarily you're not one of them. There there's people talking to one another. There's you know you mentioned uh, Okisato of of Nendo, a Japanese designer. Um, you had done a collaboration with him, and I would say that your work shares a certain kind of spirit uh, with him. Where do you think this this sort of idea or uh, this sort of uh, connection to dialogue with other people like Nendo, like all of these other designers, like CKR, people that, you know, are competitors in a way that, you know, they also are designers. Where do you think this sort of spirit comes from? Because it doesn't seem very, it's definitely not a, a kind of traditionally Italian design s- sort of uh, attitude where everything is, uh, you know, you're not. You're never going to open up a, um, a monograph about, uh, you know, Patrizia Urquiola and see a conversation between Piero Lissoni and uh, Luca, Luca Nichetto. <laughs> you know, that's never going to happen. So I'm curious. Like, and you have a podcast too, where it's you know hosted by someone and you're talking to other people. Where is this? I where does this sort of like spirit come from? Do you know what I mean? Yes, m- maybe maybe something that came from my sport. Uh, yeah, it's a team yeah. sport. Yes, basketball is a team sport. Yeah. So in the end, when you when you are playing and everyone is dreaming, no, to play in the top series, your teammates are your teammates, but in the same time, they are also your competitor. So there is a good competition, let's say. If someone is doing something better than you, you are observing and you are trying to emulate uh, that. And you put the bar always up to try not to achieve a goal. That uh, and, and I think this is a very good competition because you push each other to be better. <laughs> I think I always see also design and designer in that way. I don't feel, uh, I mean, of course, Nendo Okisato uh, is a, a fantastic designer. And when I, sometimes I'm jealous of what he's doing, but it's not a jealousy that I'm saying, I don't like, you know, that start to talk in a bad way because... For me, is a good jealousy because push me to be better. Uh, and same thing with Clayson Coevisteruna, with many friends, designer, by the way. And so, it's, I think to be competitive is Im- super important. To be ambitious is super important. But it's also important to see who is surrounding you in terms of skills and talent and embrace that because we are here in this planet all together and if we really want that this beautiful job design have a proper impact in the life of people just alone we can't do that 
But if we are moving together, we can really change things. Can you tell me a little bit about what makes you a designer and not just what you might call a stylist? Do you think that there are a lot of folks out there who call themselves a designer, but perhaps are not really one? A lot. I think... Uh, that I think that was also a problem of the media because the media somehow need to create always this news situation that every in a short time there was something new, so everything become design, no? Everything, right. uh, the umbrella of design become bigger and bigger and put inside that a lot of things that maybe was not designed. So there is. Uh, stylist that born as a stylist that now are designing was their collection but their collection most of the time looks like prompt that uh, doesn't really say nothing in terms of meaning of the project it's more like a, a fantastic picture mm -hmm. and can you explain to people what the difference is to you between a designer and a stylist well, f that is a good question because I think design is really trying to go deep into a process, a innovation, a functionality, a empathy, a, a lot of things that you want that your object have to be successful um, in the market. And the success can be related to give a function that solve a lot of problem that there was not solved or creating an object that for some reason can give to the person that own that happiness or proudness or many other things. Stylism is more nothing on, on that deep, you know, uh, analysis of processing or uh, is mostly working on cosmetics, no? It's more like, let's say, to explain properly, I can compare with the food industry. A good chef, when <laughs> uh, he's doing a fantastic cake, is not just doing um, um, uh, is he knows the yeah, he knows the ingredient and he know how to combine this ingredient that when you eat that piece is absolutely delicious and give you an experience. And then on top of the cake is creating the glaze that visually is very cool and attracts you. The other uh, and this is the work of the designer, both. The work of stylists is they know that the cake was done with this layer of um, pasta or sugar or, or chocolate. They are doing right. exactly the same uh, layer, but they just change the glaze that is not anymore, I don't know, green, but become blue. Mm -hmm. But when you taste the cake, it's nothing different of the cake that you can buy in a supermarket. What What is good design mean? mean to you for me good design is should be synonymous of also quality that means for me good design is something that uh, is not only a matter of timeless no aesthetic but it's more like quality longevity and what this object transfer to 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 you 
in a function point of view, in a aesthetic point of view, in many, in uh, so when you are able to combine all these, let's call ingredients in one single object, that for me is good design. Doesn't matter what is the output. And when you, when someone reads your your new your your first monograph, right, of all of this work that you've done, and they close the book, what do you want them to really understand about Luca Niketo? I want to that the people. I hope that the people understand that the design word is not only patinate, you know, polish picture but there is a lot of other things uh, that is happening there is a lot of encounters there is a lot of people uh, there is a community that uh, and i would love that people understand that another benchmark let's say with sports uh, my idol was michael jordan but and of course it was incredible but it can't be what he was without training himself so hard. So I would love that when people close the book, they understand that there was a lot of training to achieve what uh, I achieve. Thank you to Luca and the team at Fiden for making this episode happen. Luca's monograph is available for pre-order now at Fiden.com. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more and sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.